Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you're here. Last summer, today's guest and I spoke on a panel together about managing a career with a life-altering health diagnosis, along with Tiffany Dyba, who I interviewed in Episode 7 of the podcast. Cece Webster and I hadn't met before, but I was instantly impressed by her, her story, and the way she handles her life and diagnosis of Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. So please welcome the amazing Cece. Hi, I'm so excited to be here with you, Harper. You are one of the lights of my life. So thank you for having me. So happy to have you here. And the feeling is mutual. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. So my name is Cece Webster, uh, Cece Webster Marone. I uh, got married about two years ago, and I am an author um, and a business consultant for health, wellness, and healing-focused brands. Which was not always the case, and we'll get into that. No, it wasn't. Big change there. So tell us a little bit about what your life was like before you got diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. So honestly, I was 29 years old, climbing the corporate ladder. I worked at an international ad agency. Um, I had been there for 10 years, and I was... I thought I was doing everything right. I thought I was drinking all the green juices and doing the workout classes that I was supposed to do. And I had the right job. I was going after that next promotion. And of course, I was going out on the weekends and I was leading an active lifestyle, socially, professionally. And I had never been seriously sick before. So it took me a long time to actually go to the doctor. And after kind of holding off for about looking back, I can now date the symptoms, maybe five or six months. It was about uh, December, January, February that I I was running around specialist office trying to figure out what was going on. And I was diagnosed in February of 2016 with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, that is, it's actually a rare uh, blood cancer that affects your lymphatic system. And stage four just means that it's it's gone all the way through your body and into your bones. So it, it requires the maximum amount of treatment. And what were the symptoms that you were having for those five, six months prior? Not to freak anybody out, but it wasn't major. It was aches and chills at night, like I was getting a a flu that I just couldn't shake. I started to kind of recognize red flags when the night sweats started. Um, But usually before I get sick, that happens sometimes before I get a fever. It's just the fever never came for about a month or two. And after a good night's sleep, I felt totally fine. It's just the symptoms progressed earlier and earlier in the day, actually affecting my my work life. I was having trouble holding meetings um, and, and, you know, being totally with it in those rooms. 
um, you know, after I had taken this this position at the agency, which was obviously one of my primary roles to do. So it really started to interrupt my life. And I was so tired at the end of the day that all I wanted to do was go home and kind of sit on the couch and veg. I was losing a lot of weight really fast, which I attributed to stress. I became really creative at assigning reasons for the symptoms. I was tired because I was working too hard. I was achy because I was going out too much on the weekends. It was December. We had a lot of holiday parties. I was sweaty at night because of the sushi I had. It the, the list went on, and I became very dedicated to assigning reasons why I was feeling the way I was feeling. That's wild because you said you don't want to scare anybody. So here Sorry, you are. Guys. <laughs> what would you even tell someone that's having some of these symptoms then? I mean, would your recommendation be to just sort of monitor it or go to the doctor? I, go to the doctor once a year for a blood test. That was not something that was in my repertoire. And a lot of my friends don't really go to their general practitioner for an annual blood test because there's really no need. We're fine. You have your other doctors you go to religiously, probably multiple times a year. We all know who those doctors are. And uh, your regular practitioner or any sort of specialist Unless it's really affecting your life, why would we end up there? The interesting thing was when I did go to my general practitioner, who I picked off of Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance coverage website, no referrals, nothing. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Why? You need to know who you're going to. You need a referral. And I particularly loved this woman because she was giving out meds like candy on Halloween. She loved giving out, you know, anti-anxiety and all of the stuff. And I'm like, well, this is handy. So um, I went to her and she actually ran this blood test. And and as out of it as she was, because I really think I, you know, I really pushed away a lot of her recommendations. She was a very heavily obsessed with prescribing more than I, I needed. So I was really shocked at this moment of brilliance she had because when I did the blood test, I I actually tested positive for Epstein-Barr, which is mono. And that is very strange at 29. I'm a little old for that, right? And uh, she said, okay, here are antibiotics. If they don't work, go see a specialist to rule out things like lymphoma. That's what she said. And of course, those words bounced right off because, of course, that can't happen to me. She was right. So I, I followed the breadcrumbs. She led me to a another specialist who said I was totally fine, who led me to another specialist who said I was totally fine, to another one, to another one. And then I ended up at NYU Langone with a surgical oncologist. Just by coincidence, it was somebody's, it was an ENT's brother because I had demanded to see somebody, because something was very, very wrong in me, and I was not totally fine, and I was starting to get scared. This guy looked at me for five minutes, heard my symptoms, and said without hesitation, can I be honest with you? And I said, yes, please. And he said, I think you have Hodgkin lymphoma. 9,000 people 
in the United States get diagnosed with this every year. How could he recognize that? But he did. And so, of course, I'm I'm coming with my pharmaceutical healthcare advertising background. I'm like, we need to test it. <laughs> so that was when, you know, my world didn't turn upside down, but it started to shift. And so where did you even know what to do next? So I did not know what to do next. These were foreign words to me. And I really looked to him to help guide me. And he knew that the disease had progressed in me. And so right there um, in my first evaluation, he did a liquid biopsy, taking a needle, poked it around in my neck. He expedited those results for me, called me the next day. I'm in the biggest meeting of my life. I'm up in front of managing partners and CEOs at the agency. This is like my moment. And this is what I defined success to be at that time in my life. My fucking phone rings and I'm up in front of everybody. And I actually considered not to take the call, Harper. I actually considered to let it go to voicemail. And here was my cancer call. So talk about priorities out of whack. So my instinct took over, literally survival instinct took over. And I begrudgingly said, I'm sorry, everyone, I got to take this call. I will be two minutes. And that walk to the back of the room was the longest walk of my life. I got on the phone. The doctor said, you tested negative. And that was the first time that I felt scared because something was very wrong and nobody seemed to be able to help me. How could I get this far and everybody, specialists and experts in their field, are telling me, you look totally fine. I don't see anything wrong. Thank God for this doctor because he said before I started to panic and, you know, fly into orbit, he said, I booked you in for surgery tomorrow. I think this is a false negative. And I need you to be at the hospital at NYU Langone at three o'clock. And I said yes blindly without looking at my calendar, obviously, because uh, I got, had gotten my head on straight by now. And I went in. They took out the lymph node uh, right there in the in the surgery room. The pathologist sliced it in half. They're looking for specific cells. It's, they're called Reed-Sternberg cells. There are about five of them in there. So of course I got a negative liquid biopsy. He's poking around in there. So for anyone getting diagnosed, go for the surgery. <laughs> it was very uh, quick. It was about a 20, 30 minute procedure. And I came out with stage four Hodgkin's. I'm just sitting here shaking my head. It's such a wild thing. I mean, this phone call moment is so wild. So wild. And looking back, I cannot believe that I was that blind. I was that stupid. And to think how invincible I was, to think, oh, this call can wait. I'm in a meeting. I'm, I have a really important bullet point coming up. It's a really common thing for New Yorkers. I mean, we're sort of trained that you're supposed to prioritize your career in this way and that you got to work your way up the ladder and you've got to do everything you have to do. And you're not really a priority. And unfortunately, I think that's a, the norm in 
agency and corporate land, I think it's starting to shift and people are doing more corporate wellness and integrating certain aspects of taking care of yourself. But in your 20s, no one's telling you that you should be the priority at all. We're actually encouraged to, to your 20s are for the working years. Like this is where you really grind it. And I was totally entranced by the next jump, the next leap, the next promotion. I never thought about where I was now. I was never really in the moment and thinking, God, wow, how far have I come? You know, I went over to work on global business in London. Like I was never, I never took a moment to really appreciate, God, like how cool is that? It took getting sick as serious as that was. Unfortunately, it took getting sick for me to change my perspective on that, to redefine success, what that looks like, feels like, and most importantly, who gets the right to say that I've done a good job because that's a new skill that I've developed. I was never able to say, you know what? That was a really good pitch. That was a really good project. I did an excellent job on that. That was the best I could do. It always had to come from somebody else. And that is the that is the most powerful toxin in your life. I can definitely relate to that. You just you, you want validation from elsewhere. But it became the sole source of accreditation. Right. And to to live according to somebody else's parameters and benchmarks, which were constantly changing, it's a it's a, a never win situation. That's one of the reasons why I went off on my own to start um, helping brands and businesses, particularly in the health and wellness space, um, as a branding and marketing consultant. I took my background from the agency and all that experience. Once I took it to that healing expert or that that acupuncturist who's trying to grow their business or the naturopath who just boomed with client growth and can't handle um, the influx of business, helping them manage and grow their businesses in a meaningful and authentic way for them, It, I, I report to no one and I am judged by you know, how proud I am of them and their work and their practice. And we together decide how much we want to achieve and what success looks like. It's been an incredibly liberating thing to do. It's such a different route from where you had been in the pharma world. So I, before we dive into that too much, I want to hear a little bit more on how you navigated going back to work and managing your health while being in this pharma land. So that could be a whole nother book in itself. I did not realize that remission would be the hardest part of cancer. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, Transitioning back to the real world after going through 12 infusions of of chemotherapy it was 
and I, I've I've used this metaphor um, in my book. It, it was literally like the doctor sent me home in a stick shift, and I only knew how to drive an automatic. It was a an entirely new body that I had to learn to deal with, but that nobody could see that it that things were still clinking around in there, and the brakes weren't working, or they were working too much, and my you know, hormone fluctuations. Like I had just gotten out of like menopause at the age of 29 um, from the from the toxicity of the treatment. So a lot, a lot was going on inside and nobody could see it. They just thought to ask me how relieved I was that the cancer was gone. And, and I was, I truly, truly was. But that atomic bomb of treatment left disaster. And I had to I thought I had to at the time pretend that it was okay and that I was fine because, hey, listen, I had to be back in the office in two months. Disability leave was up. They, they're going to expect me to do my job. And even though I spent a lot, a lot of time and effort during my six months on disability, you know, going through therapy, I I spent a lot of time kind of navigating all that the wellness um, and healthful things I could do to help my body through treatment, I really immersed myself in that whole ethos of supporting my body holistically. And I, I really tried everything that could help me during that time. Now, going back to the agency, I don't have time to go down to Soho and float around in a salt bath for all afternoon. I that things have to end. <laughs> uh, and I I couldn't do my, you know, hour and a half Bikram yoga to like sweat out the the uh, the toxicness um, still there in my body two months after treatment. I couldn't do that for, you know, in the afternoon at three or four. And and that was my usual cycle. So things really had to shift and I had to accommodate going back to a, a not just a nine to five, like a nine to nine to nine. I seemed to and this was a mistake that I made. I went back to work and I was not able to apply all that I learned during that six months off, during that whole immersive experience in helping my body be healthy and get through it, I almost looked at it as, okay, vacay's over, time's up, back to work, and I'm going to be better and stronger because people want to see that in me, and I'm going to show them that I came out strong and healthier and wiser than before. I tried to write the script on how cancer changed me. Disclaimer, that does not work. (laughs) (laughs) The body, at least mine, had a totally different idea of what I was going to be doing. And it only let me play pretend for about two or three months and I had to go. I had to leave. I just could not click in. I got one one more RFP and I'm like, this is not why I sat through all that chemo. This is not. And here I am sitting with sitting there with a buzz cut, you know, clearly making people feel uncomfortable. Wow. 
So crazy. So you decide you can't do this anymore. So I'm sitting there holding that RFP and my gut, it's just, I feel sick standing there. I've skipped, I've skipped all my, all my health things that I've, I've scheduled. I would skip the yoga class at the end, trying to keep a little piece of the last six months. All of that had gone. I was now skipping meals. I, I mean, it was almost like cancer. It, like I had, tr- I was trying to forget that cancer had ever happened to me because that I wanted that to be true. And I hadn't really healed yet. And I wasn't ready to be doing all the things that I I was making myself do. And it, and it wasn't the agency. Yes, my workload was there. And yes, it was my responsibility to fill it. But I needed to be more honest and upfront about where my boundaries were. I needed to be unapologetic about my needs. And I wasn't there yet. So I quit with a very strong gut feeling that I just had to get out of the building, like bust through the doors. And I had no plan which I would never recommend to anyone. <laughs> I love these little disclaimers. And she has a certain like hand motion and face while she's giving them. <laughs> I would never recommend that to anyone. This was desperate times. When was this? This was uh, February, March, March, March. Of what year? 2017, right? <laughs> can't even remember. This is your life. I'm not 100% sure. Sounds about right. I think that sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right. Yes. Uh, And I gave in to that gut feeling that was that was telling me, you cannot sit here anymore. You cannot pretend anymore. This is not what your life is going to be. And I resigned on a blind thought that hey, maybe this could be a good story. Maybe I should write this down. That was it. That was the only plan that I had. So you hadn't thought about this consulting concept or any of the work that you could potentially do? I had never recognized all the experience that I had gained as something of value, of something that I could offer uniquely and powerfully and most of all successfully. Well, we all have it guys. It's all in there. Your experience can build your life in any form or shape that you want to make it. But it took a very serious illness. It took trying to go back and swipe it under the rug like it had never really happened. And it took my body to go into revolt for me to recognize that. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Beekeepers Naturals. Honey has always been one of my favorite products, and it's how I sweeten most things. I fell in love with Beekeepers Naturals because of the transparency they provide about their products. They know that consumers want products that are sustainable, high quality, and chemical-free, and they truly deliver. Plus, they're doing everything they can to save the bees. Bees don't just make honey. They also make powerful superfoods like propolis, royal jelly, and my absolute favorite, bee pollen. 
I put bee pollen on top of my matcha lattes and it's delicious. It's also a great boost of B vitamins, minerals, and amino acids. Whether you want products that bring you endurance, immunity, productivity, or calm, there's a Beekeepers Naturals product for you. Try their superfoods from the hive by going to beekeepersnaturals.com visible and type in the code visible at checkout for 10% off. Again, that's beekeepersnaturals.com visible and type in the code visible at checkout for 10% off. And now back to the show. So you wrote this book called So That Happened or So That Happened. I always think about the the language. It's so powerful. So that That happened. happened. Well, I made this font bigger than that in the middle. So um, it actually the title came up quite naturally because it was how I finished explaining that I got diagnosed with cancer to all my friends. And it was in that moment of blank looks across the table with the wine bottle and the appetizers that I just filled the silence with. So that happened this week. Anybody else like to share what's going on in their lives? (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, I just whatever. Oh, my God. That is so wild. So you decided that you wanted to write this book. What was your goal in doing that? My goal was to, first of all, I, I did not expect or even consider that people would actually be reading this. It is more of a cathartic experience and tool that I had to do. I had to get it out of me. And I had to write it down. And it came out in the form of chapters and words and sentences. And and in writing it, I got to process a lot of what happened in a way that was very reflective And I believe that there's lessons and principles, but also insight and perspective that I can give that will help somebody learn from my mistakes and learn from an experience that shouldn't happen to anyone. I hope that it makes you laugh because at times it was really funny. Uh, Like going to a cocktail party with your first buzz cut is one hell of an experience. And, you know, I share all those kind of little snippets of what my life was like for those that know somebody or or have an, an illness themselves. It doesn't have to be cancer. But if I could share... Not so much what I learned, but kind of how the experience made me rethink myself, my health, and my perspective in of my world. Then, then it's done something. That's so powerful. It really is. It just really, it's one of those things where, you know, you can go through this and you can decide to move on and sort of live your life. Which or- I really, really tried to do. Well, and I think you did in in your own way. Yeah. But going back to the agency was a was my attempt at thinking, okay, yep, learned a lot, had cancer, uh, tried a few wellness trends on words and upwards. So that happened. And just like be done with it. 
That is not how life works, people. (laughs) So I would love for you to read a little excerpt from the book to share a little bit about what this is like so then people can pick it up themselves. We'll put it in the show notes so everyone can buy it too. So I just have a a couple words I'd like to read from chapter 10, which is titled Ex Corpus. And it is in the time when I was really rejecting, I was in the middle of treatment, maybe about three quarters through. So its effects had really kicked in. And and I was rejecting everything that was happening to me and around me. Uh, here I was dating my then boyfriend, now husband, thank God, <laughs> um, trying to remain hold of any sort of normalcy in my life. But, you know, I this is this is the chapter that I give in, that I let go, that I let cancer and chemo and this whole thing take the reins, take me. Okay, I'm on the ride and you drive and I'm not going to take control anymore. And that is a really scary moment. So I'll start uh, chapter 10, ex corpus. I accepted that cancer was going to be a solitary experience. Despite my friends and family wanting to be there for me, I came to realize that it was impossible for them to come along. Even by doing all the right things, like sending flowers and notes, it was impossible for them to know what this felt like. They couldn't know the gravitational lurch in my stomach when those first handfuls of hair lay limp in my palm, and they couldn't know what it felt like to plead with a god as the scanning machine orbited around me, or to know the burning acidic difference between the red chemo drip and the blue one. They couldn't know what it felt like for me to watch my whole world shift and sink around me while I clung on to the fraying rope of normalcy in an attempt to keep from going under. As the infusions went on, and the more I retreated into isolation, I struggled with my relationship with the world, specifically acknowledging and accepting the support around me. How I related to my world had changed in one fell swoop with the cancer diagnosis, and I was unsure how to interact with it anymore. In one camp, I didn't want to pick up the phone and talk about how I was feeling. In the other, I didn't want to be alone. This dichotomy was mirrored in those around me. Some friends didn't call, couldn't call. They didn't know what to say or how to say it. I knew it was scary for them, too. And I knew they were unable to be there for me. And I'll end there just because Harper and I, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about all the funny things friends do when you're sick. (laughs) And it was a really interesting cultural experience and almost psychological study uh, (laughs) to see (laughs) the ways in which people reacted to such a serious diagnosis, I had I had a lot of flowers, and I also had, uh, you know, the agency for which I worked at the time sent me, and this is to give give a little bit of credit. Uh, this is before the actual diagnosis came. This is just while I was being 
seriously tested uh, with a specialist and we knew something wasn't right and we were kind of playing around with a mono diagnosis at the time. I got about four servings of uh, Lenny's chicken noodle soup <laughs> and about eight cartons of mini Tropicana orange juices. <laughs> and I really appreciate the thought. But it it's just interesting little things like that where you become almost, and I, I felt this way, I almost felt like I wasn't, uh, nobody knew how to handle me anymore. And I, I never felt more alone being showered with so much support. It was a very dichotomous feeling. And I think in a situation like that, you want to feel like yourself and normal, even this, if this is a new normal. But I think it's one of those things where if you're going to send food, send something that like they know that you actually like eating, not just what they think is the right thing. It's just not personalized. And this episode yeah. will air after we've already had Letty Cotton Pogrebin's episode where we talk a lot about this topic of being more thoughtful and thinking about who the person is that you're sending stuff to. And the flower thing, while it's a really nice gesture. It is. It is. And, you know, the first one or two or three were great. When we get up into the tens, we're starting to wonder if we need a bigger apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the humor. And, And the potted plants, they just kept coming because the thinking behind that, and one friend sent a bonsai tree, because they live forever. So... Let's just reflect on that for a second. (laughs) So this little snippet of the book that you read was really about you and you going through this and feeling like you were doing it alone and how no one could feel what it was like to be in your body. But you also wrote a lot in the book about your husband, Matt, and what it was like to navigate that. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of being in this relationship? And, you know, now he's your husband and you're grateful for that. But how did you maintain that? So it was, you know, and and I don't quite know how that worked out, but it did. (laughs) Bless him. But it was really fast what happened. I mean, we were going out to dinner at a a little restaurant in Soho one week and, and the next week, literally six days later, we are sitting in the Wild Cornell Fertility Center counting my eggs before chemo. And we hadn't even talked about the idea of getting married or children or families. And he came along and sat with me. And I will never forget hearing the recommendation from the fertility specialist that, you know, welcoming me to hold off treatment to freeze my eggs. But the fact that I was stage four, uh, I was advised that we needed to start treatment now and that we should not wait for six weeks. But if you really want to, we can throw a few in the freezer. How do you make that decision? How I made the decision was I thought, you know, I have a very tall, very beautiful, very smart sister that we could possibly tap into as backup. 
but for the love of God, I'm 29. I shouldn't be thinking about this. And here I am sitting next to this guy. We're, we're, we just moved in together pretty fast after six months. This is a young relationship. We're still getting to know each other. And he knew that when we, we decided to move forward with treatment and forego the fertility uh, freezing, he knew that I was asking if you will still love me, if you will still want to be with me, if I can't give you a family, if our lives take an unexpected turn. And I didn't have to say any of those words. I didn't have to ask those questions. But he took my hand after I said, I think we're going to start. The oncologist wants to start next week. He took my hand and we looked at each other and it was almost telepathic that he was he knew that this is going to this is going to be our lives and whatever happens happens and and I, I'm with you. It became a we situation for him. Yes. And, and for you. And very much so. He um, he took more than I wanted him to take on. And I encouraged him to go out. I encouraged him to go see his friends when I didn't want to go outside. I reminded him that cancer had chosen me, not him, and that he should live his life according to how all the normal people are doing it. Here I was up in a tower on 21st Street with my hair falling out and my body crumbling and losing myself into the abyss of the of cancer and chemo and he was trying to come with me and I kept pushing him out of the boat he took on the burden and the trauma in a different way and I pushed him out of the boat but he was swimming behind it the whole time <laughs> and it unfortunately he experienced more than I I wanted him to, which I I think I was trying to protect him more than is possible. Wow. You've talked about the anxiety you felt after going through cancer. Major anxiety. Major anxiety. So what role does anxiety and fear play in your role at this point? I mean, you're in remission. I'm in remission. And... When someone's in remission, you know, we always get like what we call in the cancer world, us cancer people, we call it scanxiety. Always scary to go in for a scan. I can honestly say that I am not, I am not frightened. I refuse to be frightened of it coming back. If it came back, I would be absolutely beside myself, but I choose not to live my days thinking that it could. Has my perspective changed on longevity and invincibility and youth? Yes. I don't think any of us at 29 or 30 are biologically programmed to understand the concept of death. And to have that presented in your life at such an early age, it changes things. I sometimes... Not sometimes I should to be let's be honest all the time 
I am managing the stress of maintaining balance, of maintaining wellness. I tried to give it up once. It it is insisted that it is now a part of my life. I manage the stress of making sure that I am able to say that I've done the best that I can do, that I did a great job on that project, that that client has a great, you know, fully functioning business, very successful, and it's because of my help. It's a very delicate balance um, that I have to maintain for my for my mental health. And, you know, I still see a psychologist. Words like PTSD have been used. And I truly believe that I am still healing physically, but more emotionally and and mentally. Um, it is a whole new thing trying to go to sleep now. There's like a a full hour routine. I mean, Matt thinks it's hysterical. Like he sends me off to get ready for bed so we can like time our time our Netflix show because I have to like, you know, do the lavender essential oils and the, the CBD oil. And then I have to brush my teeth and wash my face and it's all natural. So like I have to, you know, really like maybe wash my face twice and then I get in and cream my feet. Like it's a whole process. And and waking up is as well. I really... I'm, I ritualize going to bed and waking up, and that's been one of my little gifts to myself, becoming an entrepreneur and, and maintaining that balance. It just it helps me de-stress, take my time, remove myself from anything that got me all revved up during the day. Even if I'm having a stressful day with back-to-back meetings and and lots of deadlines, I make sure to remove myself from that high anxiety moment. And it can wait. It can. The world will not end. You can take 10 deep breaths, go make some tea, go for a 20-minute walk, and come back. And believe me, your life will still be standing. Your business won't have crumbled. I promise. I wonder if this is just people who have gone through health stuff. But when I worked for other people, I was way more stressed, anxious, working the most crazy hours. I mean, I look back to certain times in my last few jobs before I started my business and I was psycho. I mean, just like absolutely, absolutely nuts. And since I've had my business for four years now, I don't know that I ever, I've had a day here or there, but I have not had significant periods of time where I felt anything remotely similar to that experience. And it's so interesting to think about because it feels like a completely different person. I've had some days in the last few years where I'm like, you're going too fast. This is too much. You have too many things on your calendar. You're seeing too many clients at once, whatever the back to back is. And I can't handle it, but I'm aware of it. And in those days of working for other people, yeah, it was totally like, you don't have a choice. Yeah. You push through. And if you get pneumonia or you get sick or whatever you feel, you deal with it. You know, suck it up. Yeah. And it's so funny because I feel like a lot of people ask me about entrepreneurship and, you know, how my lifestyle changed and how did you become an entrepreneur? It sounds so scary. 
And I honestly think I'm a better version of myself. Totally. Because I learned how to maintain this lifestyle and go to yoga in the middle of the day or see a friend and have a three hour lunch or whatever it looks like. I navigated it in a way that I would have never allowed when I worked for other people. And could it possibly be that we are entrepreneurs because when we click into that unhealthy gear, that go, 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 put myself and my wellness in the backseat of the priority list, are we entrepreneurs because we demand that lifestyle now, that we demand to answer to ourselves and our own needs and our own priorities? I could never go back to working for somebody, let alone a large-scale agency. It was great while I was there, but I have a different set of needs now, and my life is functioning just fine in terms of how I'm defining success. How do you define success now? So before, it was promotions, money, and making sure I was, you know, social and active and able to do all that I wanted to do. My success definition now is, am I mentally balanced? Am I excited this morning to do what I'm about to do? Can I pay my rent? (laughs) Seriously, if you can cover your cost of living and You didn't say disclaimer. No, I didn't say disclaimer because it's a it's a logistical it's a realistic issue. That's a that's the money thing is one of the major reasons why a lot of people are scared of the word entrepreneur because it's it's going it's in the Wild West. You don't know where your next paycheck is coming. And believe me, that's part of the thrill. (laughs) Um, it is scary sometimes. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And you do have to work and hunt, but you are excited and passionate about it. And you can have a three hour lunch if you want. It's a better, my definition of success now is takes into account my emotional state, my spiritual state, my balance, as well as my bank account. It prioritizes me over somebody else. And if you can shift even bits of your life, I'm not, you know, if everybody could go work for themselves, that'd be awesome. But you don't have to go start your own business or be an entrepreneur and go, you know, pave a new road like and apply these principles. It can be done to prioritize yourself over others in your life as it is now. That's really great advice. And I think a great place to leave us. So my dear, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I adore you as you know. How can people learn more about you, your company, Webster Works, and purchase your book? So that happened. Uh, The book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere that sells books, really. It's on Kindle and paperback. I was actually thinking while you were reading the book, is there an ebook? Because your voice is so good. I have been working. Uh, that's on the list. Okay. Yes. 
Cool. It is on the list, and I will be doing an audible version. I was going back and forth about it because some of the anecdotes and how it's written, there's a lot of inner monologue, like when I'm getting diagnosed, like what's going through my head. And I feel like it sounds better in your own heads um, because you would relate to the the thoughts. <laughs> but to learn more about the book and, and also what I'm doing in terms of speaking and events, I just got back from uh, speaking at the future of media and publishing in Holborn, London, with a great company called Biblio and great first quarter lined up with some exciting things in New York City and Boston. So um, you can follow me on Instagram at Marone to get like kind of the, the real down and dirty backstory. I'm probably most active on Instagram. Awesome. We'll be sure to link all those things in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Harper. I loved, loved chatting with you. And thank you for, for creating this platform for us. What you're doing is really important. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.